I'm talking about a different way of inhabiting a body in the modern world that values, above all, some kind of mystical experience of consciousness or mind and sees that mind or consciousness reflected in the religious traditions, but also understand that none of those traditions has a monopoly on that mind or consciousness. that I'm excited would be an understatement. This project has been months in the make and it's taken a lot of input from very creative and helpful people. So thank you for everybody who's had a hand in the details in bringing a project like this to life. Thank you to my family for your support and, uh, and thank you to the participants who've been involved in those who will one day be involved. Uh, you may not know it yet, but I'll come knocking on your door. This project was really born out of a work that I was doing on my dissertation, and I kept, uh, given that I was, I was coming from a psychological perspective, but so it was pretty obvious that I'd be st studying or reading a lot of philosophers or um, you know, the borderline between psychology and philosophy, but what I didn't anticipate was religious thinkers, and uh, that's not a theological uh, proposition. It's, it's, a, it's an intellectual one, so there are an enormous amount of people who've been thinking about human experience and consciousness for uh, since the, the dawn of human consciousness. Um, and I, I needed a, a, a deeper understanding or at least some foundational ground to stand on when it comes to religious, comparative religious thought. I would go to parties and these folks would be talking about uh, religion and using a language that I really didn't understand. And so I was at one of those gatherings once and I asked my friend Jeff if he knew anybody who had written a book on the foundations of, uh, of religious thought, and he smiled and said that he had. And so I read that, and it's been instrumental in helping my own thinking. So I wanted to go to him first. He's, uh, his books are, are wonderful. They, they really urge you and kind of support you in uh, beginning to think about things that, that human beings struggle to think about. Um, I'll let him speak for himself in a bit, but what I want to do is read through his bio and then talk about what we're going to get into in this conversation, and uh, and then we'll begin. Jeff Kripal holds the J. Newton Razor Chair in Philosophy and Religious Thought at Rice University. He's the author of Comparing Religions, 2014, 
Mutants and Mystics, Science Fiction, Superhero Comics, and the Paranormal, 2011. Authors of the Impossible, the Paranormal and the Sacred, 2010. Eslin, America and the Religion of No Religion, 2007. The Serpent's Gift, Gnostic Reflections on the Study of Religion, 2007. Roads of Excess, Palaces of Wisdom, Eroticism and Reflexivity in the Study of Mysticism, 2001. And Kali's Child, The Mystical and the Erotic in the Life and Teachings of Ramakrishna, 1995. He's co-edited and written other volumes and papers. His present areas of writing and research include the articulation of a new comparativism within the study of religion that will put the, quote, impossible back on the table again. A robust and even conversation between the sciences and the humanities and the mapping of an emergent mythology or superstory within paranormal communities and individual visionaries. Today we go into uh, anomalous uh, events and experiences. We talk about religion and the relationship of sexual or sexuality and religion, the nature of sex and religion, ways to think about the comparative approach, charisma and institutional power, insider-outsider culture, a meaning and symbol, the nature of belief, faith, and gnosis, and how to differentiate those, the modern category of mysticism, uh, and it's uh, it's an interesting and challenging conversation. I'm I'm really happy that he's given his time, and as you'll hear at the end, he's he said that he would donate more of his time to the process. So you'll be hearing from him again. He's a um, he's just got a wonderful way about him, and his writing. I I, I just experience an opening when I when I read his words. So I'm grateful to him and what he does, and I'm certainly grateful for his time today. And you'll note the the music for all the episodes. I'll be using music from friends. Uh, the first the first few, uh, probably many episodes, I'll use uh, my friends Nolan Thies and uh, Toby Pipes at Modern Nations. You can check them out at modernnations.com. This first song you'll hear is Clouds, and if you hang out, um, till the end of the uh, the episode, I'll play the full song as a little gift. So I'll uh, I'll leave it there and I'll bring you Jeff now. Thanks for listening. I want to introduce you in a second, but one of the primary reasons that um, you were the first person that I'm interviewing is not only how influential your work has been for me, but also your capacity to do what I think Rudolf Otto says at the beginning of his book, The Idea of the Holy, um, this quote, the irrational is today a favorite theme of all who are too lazy to think or too ready to evade the arduous duty of clarifying their ideas and grounding their convictions on a basis of coherent thought. I, uh, when I think about you, Jeffrey Kripal, I think about somebody who actually absolutely has the capacity to do that. So thank you for being here. Yeah, thank, thanks, <laughs> thanks for talking to me, John. Um, so I'd, I'd like just to open this up. I'm, you just handed me this, um, your book that's coming out. When is it coming out? Uh, early November. Erotic and Esoteric Currents in the History of Religions. The book is titled Secret Body by Jeffrey Kripal. I can't wait to read this. Um, and it's autobiographical. 
Right. It's structured like my life from mm-hmm. the time I was a kid all the way to today. And it it's both a, a memoir, so it, it, it tells the story of my life, essentially, but it's also a manifesto. It lays out all of my books actually in 20 theses. So it crystallizes everything. So you're between. very prepared to have this conversation. Yeah, I've been th- I've been thinking about <laughs> these questions for a long time. I'm like, how how do all these weird books fit together? And so I wrote another weird book to to fit the weird <laughs> books together. That's that's essentially what it is. Well, would you uh, do me the honor of giving giving some of the highlights of that experience and what stood out? I know that in my own writing, I tend to learn by actually writing. Right. And so I'm, I'm curious, not, not only what you set out to do, but what you learned through the process. Right. I mean, people who are not writers think that a writer sits down and essentially digs up a set of ideas that are already there and puts them on the page. And of course, that's not what happens at all. Writing is more performative. Mm. It's more magical. It, you, you discover what it is you think by writing it out. You don't actually know. Um, and that, that was why I wanted to write this book. I, I lecture a lot. I travel around the country and, and the world le- giving lectures. And <laughs> one of my very common experiences is I'll go to some university and people will relate to me um, through one book I've written. And they won't know about the other five, five books. They know nothing. I'm just this person, or I'm this book, or I'm that book. And so I, I realized that actually no one has actually read the whole corpus, and so they don't actually know how the ideas fit together, and that that's not their fault, that that generally human beings are not going to read the entire corpus of any one author. So it, it was became my responsibility to pull things together and to try to find out for myself how are all these books and ideas connected. And so I wrote Secret Body as a, is a, an English translation of Corpus Mysticum, which is this kind of classic category in Catholic theology that refers to the, the social body of, of the church or Christ. And I'm using it here in a very different sense. Corpus is um, the first half of my career, which is really looking at the sexual bodies of religion and issues of male sexual orientation and mystical literature and heavily inflected by psychoanalytic forms of thinking. Mysticum refers to the second half of my work, which is really all about the nature of consciousness and how exotic it really is and how what people think of as the paranormal are actual effects or or manifestations of of these exotic forms of consciousness. Could could you help me understand paranormal in this context because that is a loaded term yeah so i wrote a whole i wrote a book called authors of the impossible which was an intellectual history of the paranormal and the reason i wrote that book is when i was working on my history of the human potential movement in california i kept talking to all these people who told me these incredible stories about things that i knew couldn't have happened but i i knew they happened um, these were things like encounters with UFOs or out-of-body experiences or precognitive dreams or uh, apparitions of dead loved ones, things things like that. Mm-hmm. And I became very curious why I had studied and been trained to think about religion for almost 30 years at that point, and I had not read one book on how to think about these experiences. I had not encountered one thinker that made these things central to his or her thought. 
And so I thought that was very strange. And so I looked at the intellectual history of, of these phenomena, and what I found was is that all of the founders of our disciplines, or most of them, particularly in religion and anthropology and even sociology, people like William James or people like uh, uh, even Fraser or Andrew Lang mm. or uh, Stephen Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung, these people were all obsessed with what we think of as psychical or paranormal phenomena. And over the course of the 20th century, with the rise of materialism and the rise of behaviorism and computer modelings of mind, all of these things become taboo. They become things that we push off the table because they, they can't actually be fit in to, to traditional materialistic or cognitive models of the mind. They don't fit. And so instead of coming up with new models, it's easier to just shove them aside. Um, the paranormal as, an, as a word actually originates in French, paranormal, in 1903. And it's coined by a medical doctor with uh, also a legal degree named Joseph Maxwell. And it's clearly a French translation of an English word, the supernormal, which was coined by a, a classicist at Cambridge named Frederick Myers. Both words meant the same thing. They were humble words, and they meant what they essentially they referred to were phenomena in the natural world for which we do not yet have any naturalistic or scientific models. They, were, they did not mean the supernatural. They did not mean ghosts. They did not mean romantic novels in your local bookstore. They, these were all scientists or, or serious researchers, and they were using this word paranormal or paranormal to essentially say, look, we don't actually know how this stuff works. We just know we see it when we work with these mediums and these psychics. We know it's real. We can see it with our own eyes and, and, and meet the people to whom it's happening. But it clearly cannot be fit into the scientific models of the day, um, which means our scientific models are incomplete. They're not, they're not wrong. They're incomplete. And as we move into the future, we need to take this, these empirical phenomena into account, like every other empirical phenomena, and create a, a, a more generous science, a more generous worldview. So that's what the paranormal, that's all it meant. Yeah. Para just means to the side of, and normal means normal. So it meant things that were normal, but to the side or just beyond what we can explain with our senses and with our ordinary um, reasoning do we do we get in here to this um dynamic between the rational and the irrational well see they didn't mean it was irrational they actually thought it had a rational explanation but that we didn't know what that was yet hmm. so I'll, I'll give the, the the easiest example to talk about is poltergeist phenomena <laughs> that was on my mind <laughs> okay so that that's a classic thing even today People think of the paranormal and they think of poltergeist. Well, okay. So the word poltergeist is German. It means something like noisy ghost or no angry spirit or something like that. And it has a, a history. It goes back to Luther, actually, believe it or not. It goes back, back about four or 500 years. And it was traditionally given a, a, a kind of supernatural or religious interpretation. Things that fly around and break um, are flying around and breaking because there's an angry spirit in the room or there's a demon or for Luther, there's a Catholic mass being said, 
Catholicism was demonic and was the source of poltergeist phenomena for Luther. Mm -hmm. So the, the traditional interpretation was to, to say it's a spirit or a ghost. Right. Shift to the late 19th, early 20th, and certainly into the 20th century, researchers who are now using this word paranormal began to study poltergeist phenomena up close, in other words, in the homes of of people around whom this was happening. And what they discovered fairly quickly was they didn't think there were any ghosts involved. They always found what they called a focal agent, which was usually a teenager or an adolescent who was extremely conflicted emotionally, sexually, was being abused, was traumatized, was a servant girl, a servant boy. And the family network was extremely conflicted. And they began to suspect that what poltergeist phenomena are that were essentially exteriorized trauma or emotional conflict that would then move into the environment and do something symbolic, like break something or catch something on fire. So the symbolism was always one of pent-up anger or pent-up frustration. But poltergeist phenomena almost never harm anyone, ever. Uh, even when they set fires, it's almost always in the daylight so people can see it. So they, they recognize very quickly that whatever was expressing itself through these physical events, you know, it was sort of like gentle, um, gentle graffiti. You know, it was they, they were marking the environment out of anger or, or, or rage, but they really didn't want to hurt anyone. They were trying to get attention. And what they found was, is that if they treated the tension, if they dealt with the family network or the source of the conflict, the poltergeist phenomenon just went away. Mm. So that's a classic case of, of the paranormal because you, you're not trying to invoke a supernatural agent. And yet, it's still well beyond any scientific paradigm we have. Even if you say, oh, this 13-year-old is emotionally conflicted or being sexually abused and that's why things are flying and breaking well that doesn't explain how things are flying and breaking because there's no physical causal chain there you you have to posit some kind of mind over matter effect essentially is what is what you're really talking about there so that's how the paranormal works it's this category that sits in between mind and matter and attempts to come up with models that do not invoke supernatural agents, but which always go back to human nature. But recognize that human nature isn't what we think it is. It's, it's much more powerful and much more exotic than we, we normally think. When you say externalized, do you mean that this person, the adolescent, um, is actively doing something, or there is not some... consciously. Okay. okay. The the focal agent they realized very quickly had no awareness of what was going, on and was as terrified, or more terrified than anyone else. Uh, so he or she was was completely unconscious of what was going on. S okay. So I, I know a bit about you, and. So I, I know that one of the things you write often about, especially in the the serpent's gift, is gnosis. Yeah. So there, there's something about experience. I mean, what do you say to people who don't have any kind of awareness or any kind of experience of those kinds of uh, realities? Well, I I th 
I say to them, your your skepticism is entirely justified because th- these are this these things are not in your range of experience. But I can tell you that there are countless human beings for whom these things are, are part of their experience. And if we are going to come up with a model of what a human being is, we can't just take the healthy and normal as 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 all of humanity. We also have to take the exotic and the traumatized and and the people who are experienced things not in the ordinary. And and my job as a as a historian of religions, of course, is to help us understand religious experience, which is often extremely exotic, extremely weird. And so I have to think about those things. That that's part of my job description. I'm not uh, my job isn't to explain, you know, how many people are sitting in which church on which day. That's for the sociologists and the political theorists. My, my job as a historian of religions is to understand what is religion. Why, why do these weird things happen? Why do they happen to these people and not those people? Why do they happen at this point in a person's life or this point in a culture's history and not some other point? And um, so that's what I think about. So, so go into the the uh, the memoir component of it. Like, what what got you so interested? Well, it's very psychoanalytic. I, I, you know, I was a normal kid, and I had a a, a really happy childhood. Too happy, actually. I grew up in a little town in Nebraska, and, and uh, it was sort of my wife calls it Mayberry, uh, and it really was. Um, and then puberty hit, and all hell broke loose uh, in me. Um, I realized, I think, on some level that, you know, uh, paradise was was going to be over soon and uh, that I would have to grow up and leave. And so I did um, something really stupid, but, but apparently quite rational on some level. I tried to stop growing up. And the way... My psyche did that was um, I became anorexic. I just stopped eating. And I think the logic was if you stop eating, you will stop growing up, you will stop being sexual, and you can stay in the garden. You can stay a boy, essentially. Now, none of that was conscious. I, I wasn't thinking those thoughts at 13 when I suddenly became incredibly pious and declared to myself that I wanted to be a saint. And so began to fast. That was my language. I was fasting to become a holy, and I had a religious vocation. That that was the way I understood it consciously. Mm. But um, I was also not eating, and I was engaging in some pretty radical sexual repression. Uh, and everyone around me was deeply disturbed by what they saw, because they saw this young, vibrant, healthy, athletic kid suddenly turn into essentially a walking neurotic skeleton, you know? And so, and that went on for, from about 13 or 14 to about 21 or 22. So I I didn't eat really for about seven years. And by that, I mean, of course I ate, but I, I just ate barely enough to survive. And, um, uh, at, when I graduated from high school, I uh, entered a monastic seminary to become a monk. I wanted to be a, a monk. Kids, I wanted to be holy. And the monks were incredibly savvy, and in, they all had PhDs. They were all smart as hell, or heaven. Uh, and um, 
one of them was a trained Freudian analyst, been trained by Bruno Bettelheim, actually, up in Chicago. And they sent their toughest cases to this particular monk. And so they told me I needed, they wanted me to enter psychoanalysis. And I was like, sure, I'll do anything. I mean, I would have done anything they asked. It was part of my spiritual life to be obedient. So I entered psychoanalysis and... <laughs> Oh my God! It was just like this Freudian <laughs> SNL skit. I mean, the the dreams were just outrageously exaggerated forms of of Freudian Oedipal theory. I mean, instantly, I this the monk asked me to to tell him what his, my dreams were, and I said, you know, I'm having all these dreams of these these women, and they have huge breasts, and they're beautiful. And they're offering me things like banana cream pies and milkshakes. And I can't take it. I, I just feel horribly guilty in, in the dream. And I, I won't take the food. And he, he said to me, he said, uh, what do you think that means, Jeff? He's a, he's a good therapist. I said, I don't know. You're the therapist. You tell me. And of course, he wouldn't tell me. <laughs> and so then I started to think about it. I was like, well, you know. Clearly, these dreams have something to do with sex and food, you know. And uh, I'm, I'm not eating, so I'm obviously I'm struggling with sex too. And all the milk, all the food they're offering me is milk-based. And so I think my mom has some. My my relationship to my mother has something to do with. It. And it just was like, you know, it was just textbook. <laughs> it was textbook edible stuff. <laughs> And, you know, like two, three months into this, I was like, Father Basil, I I think I've connected food and sex, and I'm not eating because I don't want to grow up, and and I, I also don't want to be sexual because I connect it to my mother, and I have these, these sort of Oedipal fears. And he just smiled, you know. But that, that was like, that was like just, turning knob i mean the big light bulb went off and the knobs in my system just just switched instantly and i just was incredibly hungry and i just ate and ate and ate for like six months and i gained about 70 pounds i went from 125 uh, this body here is about 230, 235. So I was at 125. Yeah, you're not a small guy. No. Uh, <laughs> I was at 125. I was I was a skeleton and Gosh. and I and I gained 70 pounds in 6 months. Uh and and the anorexia just evaporated like like fog in the morning because I because I had isolated what was actually going on on some kind of unconscious level. Now, so that's the story. But but why that took me to the study of religion was I was so fascinated by the fact, and no one could persuade me otherwise, that all of my religious behavior was driven by forces of which I was completely unaware. Mm. I, I had no idea what, that I was doing this to repress my sexuality and that I had connected food and sex and mom on some deep symbol. I, I didn't have a clue. But once that became apparent, I was healed instantly. So I couldn't question the healing. So I couldn't question the power of the symbolic connection. And so I couldn't question the reality of, of, of the unconscious, which was a completely new idea for 
a young kid from Nebraska, we didn't talk about the unconscious in, in rural Nebraska. There is no such thing. But clearly there was, or clearly there is. And then once I saw that in myself, I could see it in pretty much everyone else around me because I was living in a community of young men in the early 80s all saying that they wanted to be celibate for the rest of their lives, which is a very strange thing. And what I realized uh, through another series of events actually involving three suicides, three suicide attempts, is that a, most of the guys in the seminary were, were in fact gay and that this was creating tremendous guilt and angst among the three that tried to kill themselves, or so I, or so I imagined. But it was also being expressed in all kinds of playful and, and symbolic ways in the community that were, I think, quite healthy, actually. So in, in this period of time, there were three of these people who attempted suicide. Well, two of them died. Two, one, one monk hung himself in the barn. One seminarian blew his head off. So, so they're just gone. I have no idea why they did that, but I suspect it had something to do with sexual orientation. And repression, yeah. Yeah. And my third, the third one was my best friend. Oh. John, his name was John, and he swallowed a, a, um, a bottle of sleeping pills and was in a coma for days. And he came back, so he didn't die. And I said, John, why did you do that? And he said, well, Jeff, I did it because I'm gay. And I couldn't deal with the guilt anymore. And I was like, whoa. whoa. You know? And I, I actually didn't have a shred of judgment in me about homosexuality. That wasn't the issue. What shocked me was that um, people would kill themselves over something so deep and that it was my own faith tradition that had created the conflict. You know, I could see instantly that that's actually the church's fault. You know, that's a direct function of the church's teachings at that point on homosexuality. Mm -hmm. And so I got really upset with my own faith tradition. Uh, and I saw all around me all of these men, these young men who, who were clearly were gay. Now, I could see that now. I had, my eyes had been opened. Scales fell off. The scales eye. fell <laughs> off. John said to me, Jeff, didn't, don't you know almost everybody is here is gay? And I said, uh, no. <laughs> and then I was like, I started to think I grew about up in it. Mayberry. Yeah, I'm, I'm from Mayberry. <laughs> and I started to think about it. I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Yeah. And then suddenly, all of these behaviors that were playful and funny, and but I did, just went right over my head, <laughs> so, suddenly actually were really funny. And I made total sense to me. And I was like, oh my gosh. Religious vocation is completely tied to sexual orientation. And um, being a straight heterosexual man is not what this gig is about. You know, I, I was essentially a confused straight guy in a walking into a gay bar to, to make it too secular. I just didn't fit. It, it, it wasn't that there were lots of wonderful people in the bar. I, and I actually love these people. They're great. But I just didn't belong in that bar. Jeff, how many feathers do you ruffle when you <laughs> speak in this way? <laughs> well, I don't know. You know, it's no secret that uh, the priesthood is... Hey, it's okay. 
it it's no secret that the priesthood is is uh, a very attractive vocation for gay men. Um, and again, my observations are not judgmental vis-a-vis the homosexuality, um, which I actually th- I actually think gay men are, f- are make far better um, priests and 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 nurturing counselors than straight men do. I think it makes total sense, actually. What what I get so upset about is the hypocrisy of the institution that is so homophobic and so damaging uh, in its public statements, and yet from the inside, obviously so homoerotic and so so uh, uh, aware of that. These these guys know. They know, they know darn well what's going on. Um, but the institutional pressures prevent them from really doing anything about it. And, and that's, that's really what upset me at that point in time. But why it's relevant here is not to talk about Catholicism and homosexuality. Mm-hmm. Why it's relevant is, for me, it was this huge lesson that religion isn't what it looks like. There are always things going on inside and behind the curtain that are completely incompatible with what is going on in front of the curtain. And I became fascinated by that difference. And so when I went, when I left, I I graduated from the seminary and I decided to go to the University of Chicago and pursue the comparative study of religion. What I really was, was trying to ask was, well, how does this work? How, what is the relationship between sexuality and religion, not just in Catholicism, but in all these other religions too? I mean, I wanted to see if the same patterns played out. And essentially what I found is that they do. They play out differently, but there's a lot of similarities. And so this is part of the serpent's gift. Well, you know, one of the arguments of the serpent's gift is that within a traditional religious context, heterosexuality is almost always heretical or marginalized. Uh, the, 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 the professional elites of the religion tend to organize in all-male structures that, that are not terribly friendly to either heterosexual men or women because both of those actors would mess up the, the same-sex male structure of the institution. Uh, and so that became kind of one of my meta-projects in the first half of my career was thinking about those things. I actually don't think about that anymore. I'm not in- even interested in it because I think I think I resolved it. I think I just think I'm right about that. And, and my, by me being right, it's not like I came to that on my own. There, there are hundreds of intellectuals like myself who have written astonishing work on these topics. And I was just one little voice in that community of intellectuals thinking through these issues in the in the 80s and 90s and into the millennium. Would you uh, direct us to some of those? Well, I mean, for me, the probably the most eloquent voice in all of this is a man named Mark Jordan, who who's at Harvard now. And Mark's a, a a theologian and a historian of sexuality who's also who's also um, you know openly queer or gay himself uh, and he's deeply religious and he's been writing about these themes for decades now and when I read when I first read Mark's work I first encountered Mark's work in a book called The Silence of Sodom uh, 
which was all about Catholicism. And it just read like a blueprint of my seminary experience. He just nailed it. Wow. And so Marx won. Um, I mean, there's so many. Uh, William Countryman has a book called Dirt, Greed, and Sex. Uh, there's a book called Unprotected Texts, which, I, which I've taught. <laughs> That's it's a good wonderful. title. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so w w there's, there's a part of me that wants to um, deconstruct that a bit, it, which is the, the literal and the symbolic. Um, one of the things that really interested me, I found a letter from Dante um, to the Congrande de la Scala, the, where he was talking about differentiating between how he how to be, uh, how the inferno is to be interpreted, and right. that was sent me off into my dissertation topic, which uh -huh. is the lenses through which we can view various, not only scripture but our lived experience. And so I'm I'm curious when you when you know people who are really excavating these subjects use certain terminology, certain words. Uh, other people carry different baggage that goes along with it. And I'm curious when you do talk about the homoerotic or the uh, heterosexual or the uh, male or even sexuality, um, I, I hear a couple different layers in that simultaneously. So I right, wonder if you'd right. kind of unpack some of this layer because I know people are probably responding to this layer. Right. So, yeah, that's important because symbolism does not equal sociology. In other words, just because you have a symbolism doesn't mean that that is accurately reflecting how the, the social system is, is, is set up. Um, when I use the word homoerotic, I do not mean that people are having sex. I mean that there's a same-sex structure to the symbolism and the ritual and the institution. And in the case of Catholicism, it's always a group of empowered men or a man who is worshiping a male god. So it's male to male, no matter what you do there. Now, of course, there are women as well, but they're disempowered in relationship to the men. And I don't think the, the, the gender patterns work the same with the women either. I, I don't write about women um, because I was trained in a decade where there were lots of gifted women writing about women, and I didn't see any reason to reproduce their work. And I knew from being a man that you don't speak for women. You know, so there was a kind of practical uh, a moral aspect, of, but there was also just a kind of pragmatic aspect. Uh -huh. So I don't write about women. I just write about men. So just to interrupt there, what, uh, who are a couple of the folks that you really felt? Um... Well, I, w I was trained with Amy Hollywood, who's at Harvard now. And, you know, uh, Judith Butler was coming into the fore there. Um, there, were, there were so many, actually. The whole f feminism had been in its second or third wave by the time I got into graduate school. And so that was already an established literature that, that I had read into and knew about. But I knew I wasn't going to be participating to the same extent. So, so the homoerotic doesn't mean that anybody's doing anything genital. It, it means that the symbolic structure of the religion or the institution is, is male to male or female to female, whatever, whatever the case might be. But of course, it's usually male, on, male to male. Um, and, um, and so that's what... I, and I also realize that just being a heterosexual male in a, in a devotional or, or, or a liturgical setting in Catholicism, a lot of the symbolism just didn't work for me. 
I, I just found yeah. it odd. Yeah. Uh, all this talk of the love of Christ and and eating His body and and drinking His blood. I was like, oh, okay. Or marrying Christ. That was the dominant meta- metaphor or symbolism in my own mystical tradition. But it just made absolutely no sense to me because I couldn't imagine why I would want to marry Christ. But if I were have been a gay male, I think that would have made total sense, mm. you know, or a woman or a heterosexual woman. It would have made total sense, too. But it made no sense as a heterosexual male. So I knew that there was something going on there. And my argument has never been simple in the sense that homoeroticism equals homosexuality equals all of the religion. That's not what I'm arguing. I'm arguing when you have an elaborate religious tradition that has existed for centuries and it has taken institutional forms, those forms and those symbolisms select for particular kinds of genders and particular kinds of sexualities. And over the decades and centuries, those sexualities and those genders will be reinforced and will be nurtured and captured by the tradition. And other genders and sexualities will be pushed out of the tradition into society or political life or or or, or the marketplace or whatever it is. So it's it's not a it's not a it's not a universal argument. It's an argument about patterns and statistics and yeah, probabilities. And, and if this were somebody sitting on my couch, we'd be talking. I'd be thinking at least about repression or suppression. The idea of any kind of organized structure that then pushes anything, anything at all, out, it becomes demonic. Or, or undesirable or, or other, I guess, is the... Well, the complexity with homosexuality is a lot of these traditions do demonize it and repress it, but that repression then needs some kind of outlet, and mm-hmm. the religion also supplies the outlet through this devotional pathway or this, or this ritual pathway. So you can never, ever have sex with another man, but you can marry Christ. You know, So it's repressed and expressed or sublimated at the same time. It's it's not one or the other. And this is what Mark Jordan was so good at. He showed these mechanisms of repression and denial, but he also showed these mechanisms of sublimation and affirmation. Uh, and, and that was my argument. It was never a simple, uh, it's always this way argument. It was very much a psychoanalytic argument about repression and sublimation. Mm-hmm. Well, so it, this gets into... Um, and I want to jump headfirst into what we had talked about around uh, definitions, too. I mean, because you're bringing up a lot of concepts, I think, that are important to note. And this this whole exploration is grounding itself, that, that I'm doing, is grounding itself in the sacred and the secular. Right. And that, by its very nature, holds this dialectic that we're talking about. So would you, would you speak to a little bit about what is sacred and what is secular? Right. So before I go directly there, let me make a point, though, is that in all of my work on the erotic, I never, it was never purely secular. I don't think human sexuality is just sex. I don't think it's about just about biology and, and the transmission of genes. It's also about weird altered states of energy that create altered states of consciousness and that can induce religious experience. There's some ontological or metaphysical connection between human sexuality and and, and the spirit or, 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 or the spiritual experience. And so, again, my argument was not a simple one. It wasn't reducing the religious to the sexual. It was saying, 
actually the religious is being driven by the sexual, but the sexual is also related to the religious. It was this dialectical loop that was going on. And that's what people have had such a, some people have had such a hard time understanding about my work. They want to paint me as some kind of evil Freudian reductionist. Uh, when when that's half true, I, I am an evil Freudian reductionist, I guess. <laughs> but 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 the reduction then flips around and sublimates into these profound religious experiences, which I don't think can be explained by biology or sexuality at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's both sides of that that swing. Now to get to the sacred and the secular. Um, Secularism, there'd be no study of religion without secularism. Secularism is, the way I would think of it, is simply a political and social arrangement that does not allow any particular religious tradition to take over. In other words, you create a space where the, the legal and political framework is not a religious one. And so religions can't tell you what to do or what to think, or what to say, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that secular spaces are anti-religious. In fact, what we find is that secular spaces can be anti-religious, like you got, say, in Soviet communism, or Maoist China, definitely. But the secularism that that the U.S. Constitution uh, uh, created has actually resulted in 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 a plethora of religious expressions. It's allowed for a religious pluralism that's just unheard of because it doesn't allow for any kind of hegemony or any any kind of clampdown by a particular religion on all the others. You know, if you have a state religion, one state religion, it's going to clamp down on all the others. But if you have a secular constitution that also grants religious freedom, you're just going to have an explosion of different religious forms and traditions, but not any one of those is going to be able to take control of the public conversation because the the secular the secular arrangement doesn't allow for that. Now, the study of religion really is only a couple hundred years old now, and it originates in Europe well after secularizing forces are in place, and. It, it flourishes in generally Western secularizing cultures in which there is a separation of some kind between church and state and in which people are not going to be punished or, or harassed or, 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 or even killed for, for saying critical things about a particular religious tradition. And that is the case in a lot of cultures on the planet to this day. I mean, there are blasphemy laws in some Islamic countries, for example, that you simply can't say certain things. We, the, blasphemy makes no legal sense in the U.S. We have no blasphemy laws. You can't, it's not a legal category. Um, so that, that kind of legal space then allows something like the study of religion to take place. It's also an emotional space. It's also a, a spiritual space where people can begin to question the most basic assumptions about their own religious traditions because they're no longer completely embedded in those traditions. Um, the sacred, you know, is, in the study of religion, it has a very specific lineage in people like Rudolf Otto and, and Emile Durkheim. It comes out of sociology and, and the history of religions. And essentially, 
what the sacred is, is it's the opposite of the profane. Um, the profane literally is that which is in front of the temple. In other words, that which is outside the temple. It's the market. It's the ordinary exchanges and social behavior of human beings. The sacred is what's inside the temple. It's what's set apart. It's what's taboo. It's what the ordinary person cannot have access to because it's too dangerous and it's too holy. And, and so what someone like Rudolf Otto meant by the sacred, and this is what confuses people, because we, in the modern West, the holy or the sacred has devolved into the ethical or the moral or the good. So if I call you holy, what most people hear by that is you're an ethical person, you're a nice person, you're a nice man. But actually, to be holy in most traditional cultures is not to be nice or even particularly good. It's to be powerful. It's to be able to be do certain things. It's to have a certain energy or charisma or charge around you that is, in some sense, palpable, but also a bit scary. You know, sacred people are scary people. Um, you don't you don't want to be a prophet or a saint, or you or you certainly don't want a prophet or a saint in your family, historically, because these are intense, eccentric scary people who are are dangerous but but in creative ways so the sacred the way Otto used it and the way we use it in the discipline today means essentially a force or a presence that's experienced in the environment that can be nurturing and redemptive but can also be dangerous or even deadly and so this is what you actually see in the ancient world, if you look with, with open eyes. God, for example, in the Hebrew Bible, is not someone you want to get too close to. If you see God face to face, you're dead. If you touch the Ark of the Covenant, you're dead. You know, the that's why the temple in Jerusalem was essentially a kind of um, nuclear power plant. You know, only the the, the priests could enter it. And they could only enter the Holy of Holies on, on a few days of the year. That was where the, the, the nuclear generator was, you know. And so that's how the sacred functions for most of human history as this sort of taboo, powerful force that you want to use in the community for all sorts of good reasons, but you also want to stay away from and protect yourself from. We have no context for that. Today. No. And that's why when, for example, deeply religious people do really violent things, we say, oh, they're not religious. But of course they are, because the sacred can be very violent. You know, we are. We have become so disconnected. I think about some I think Joseph Campbell said it at some point about, you know, we we want our meat with a food dye that makes it pink and wrapped in plastic wrap, but we want to forget about the fact that somebody's blood had to spill for that. Right. And of course, the one of the main ways you approach the sacred historically is through sacrifice. Right. And that means cutting the head off of an animal or in some cases a human being. Mm -hmm. And people forget that the core of Christianity is a human sacrifice. So... <laughs> That's the sacred, you know, that's, that's really scary. And that's really violent, 
you know. But that's the symbolism at the core of a lot of these religions is this sort of violence that opens out into the sacred. That's what I like when when I was reading the idea of the um, the idea of the holy, the mysterium tremendum. Yeah. is this. Um, it was a new new term for me, and it opened things up a bit. I like there's that dialectic between the kind of uh, devout and pure and um, uh, good, and then this kind of evil and demonic and earthly. The demon is as sacred as the angel. Yeah, the demon is simply the negative side of the sacred, and the angel is the positive side. But they're both expressions of the sacred. That's how a, a, that's how Otto would talk, and that's certainly how I would talk. Uh, and that just opens up all kinds of doors for us if we if we can inhabit that space, because then we can think about forms of, of religiosity and forms of human experience and not shove them away. I, th- I think that's why Job has been so compelling for people, that, that story in particular, because of the, the aggression from God, you know, in those moments that are so profound and really humbling, uh, and the boils. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it almost sounds, what you're talking about, and I, I, this is an area of research that I've, I've been into around the charismatic, mm-hmm. um, it, it, it borders on shamanic uh, research and thought, you know, the idea that there's this very kind of powerful and uh, if, if I'm, I'm, I'm think Weber wrote that char- charisma is, I, I think the etymology is a gift or something like that. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's from the New Testament. So, so what about that around these kind of powerful, energized individuals? Yeah, well, when he, when Weber was talking about charisma and he, he is the person who brings it in to modern sociology and the study of religion, he's really thinking about magical power. And he's thinking about all of these prodigies in these different religious systems who are qualitatively different than everybody else. And and like the shaman, you know, or uh, like the sorcerer or, 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 or whomever. Um, and he meant something palpable. He meant something that was quite real, you know. Um, in my textbook, you know, I talk about charisma a lot, and I said there's really two, there's two ways of thinking about charisma. There's, there's the magnetic metaphor, and there's the nuclear metaphor. The, the magnetic metaphor, which is how most sociologists would think of it, is that charisma is always produced by a social structure in a social context. So, when the rock star, when Michael Jackson gets up or got up on stage and people started to scream and faint, um, that was a, a function of the production itself. You, you need the stage, you need the music, you need the lights, you need the ritual context for the charismatic charge to happen. You need a, you need a magnetic or social field. The person himself or herself is not charismatic. Um, but once you put him in a particular ritual context in which he's a prodigy at, the charisma can happen. Okay, And that, of course, works in religion, too. When the Pope comes out to speak, it's a ritual space. It's a very right. dramatic architectural space. He's endowed with all kinds of institutional power, and so the charisma is obvious, but it relies on all of that. If you were to meet the same guy you know, in the toilet stall, uh, in the bathroom at a at a football game, he has no he has no charisma. He's nobody. He's just another guy, 
right? So it's 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 the social space that creates the charisma. Now, but I actually don't I actually don't fit like the magnetic because I think some people are actually freaking radioactive. Yeah, I agree. I and that's what I call the nuclear model. Some people just exude this weird energy and when you're around them you can feel it yeah they are not like other people and it's not just a pro a, a production there's something going on uh, and and charisma like the sacred is a bit dangerous and it often involves transgressive behavior and it often results in Bad things happening, you then, know. Doesn't it have to involve transgression? Uh, I, I, you have because who is? Well, I, I take that back because there are, I'm sure, are plenty of people who are charismatic that are kind of uh, mouth uh, speakers for the collective, you know, and they just. It's usually transgressive. I mean, Weber thought it was. Yeah. You know, Weber thought that charisma was a, a creative force, and that it changed society by taking it apart. You know, you don't change something unless you take it apart right. first. And so charismatic figures are often bad boys or bad girls. And um, they're often sexually transgressive. You know, they mm -hmm. often embody, they're often gender unspecific. You know, they violate all kinds of binaries. And, and that's part of their charisma. Is the ambiguity. Is the ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and that's, I think that's what the, the, the most fascinating, um, I, I'm really interested in shamanic, the, that world, and all those things about sexual transgressions and odd behaviors, really irreverent, I mean, poking at all kinds of internalized models of what is right and wrong and uh, keeping people back on their, on their heels. I think the comic has a way of doing that as well. Oh, comedy is so important there. And... It, I think I think comics are our modern day, you know, truth tellers. Oh, Carlin would just rip you apart, <laughs> rip your feeling, everything about just yeah. would say something so quickly and yeah. easily, and then and and up. as a culture, we allow that. Yeah, we, we need it. We allow comedians, but they would they would get killed in other social spaces, right? You know, and um, so I just yeah, comedy is another one. Yeah. So, uh, so here I am, right? Going. This is my autobiographical research experience, and I'm looking into um, the sacred and the secular, and uh, what what things are do you think are important? Um, words in particular, right? On this in this theme of definition, what what do I need to know? What what things do I need to be looking at? Well, charisma would be a big one. Yeah. So would transgression. Um, I think you need to think about whether the person in question is inside or outside the social system. Um, I don't think it's an accident that American comedy is dominated by Jews and, and, and black comedians. Um, <laughs> those are the people who know something's really screwed up about the system, right? <laughs> and, and they stand outside the system, and yet they're not outside the system. They're kind of both and, right? Right. They're in the system, and they're benefiting from it, but they're also outside it. Is that like, uh, you know, the, the god of the horses has to be a horse? Is, is, you know, the, we have to have some kind of relatability to somebody who's being this kind of trickster figure? Yeah, I mean, it can't be too other, yeah. or there's no way to communicate. Right. 
But if you're completely embedded in the system, you don't have an outside perspective on it, and there's no critique. And th this, of course, comes into the study of religion, too. The study of religion arose from, the, from certainly Protestant Christianity, but from Protestant intellectuals who were starting to move out of the system. So you've got to be able to talk to the system, but you can't be entirely in the system. And this played out in my own autobiography. When I, At the end of my career in the seminary, I had wonderful spiritual directors who basically said to me, Jeff, the questions you're asking, we will not allow you to ask in the church. And by we, they, they didn't mean themselves. They meant the church would not allow those kinds of questions and certainly wouldn't allow me to answer them, but actually would not allow me to pursue them either. And so they said, we are, in this case, I, I think you have an intellectual vocation and not a religious one. Hmm. And I think you should leave. Wise. You know? And that was crushing. Yeah. Okay. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to join a monastery, not be an academic. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that he was actually right. Wow. And and so I left, and there was a tremendous loss and sadness and a kind of death there. But he was simply right. And that, that goes back to this point of are you on the inside or the outside or are you both or what you know, where where is your position in all of this? Um, and like with your work, and I'm guessing about your work because I don't know a lot about it, but if you're talking about entertainers and charismatic people who are famous, they they clearly are inside the system in the sense that they're benefiting from it. Their mm -hmm. fame and their stardom rely on the social system and are a right. product of the social system. But as entertainers or artists or musicians or whatever they are, th their art, by definition, is usually out, outside or, or a bit edgy. You know, that's what makes it art. That's what makes them entertainers and not just uh, uh, politicians. Certainly what we call stardom, I mean, to be a star historically is a, is a mystical conception. You know, um, the astral is, it participates, the soul participates in the astral and, and the gods come from the stars. And when the, the person dies, the, the soul leaves and becomes a star again or becomes associated with a star. So there's all this stuff around stars and souls in the ancient world that I, I think this kind of language must be drawing on in some way. Um, so I, there's got to be that. And the way that secular people relate to stars, I think, is religious in a kind of unconscious way. I could not agree more. Yeah. I think that's same with athletes too. So, by the some way, some of the most religious people I know are atheists. Yeah, and and that seems to challenge them a lot. Well, you don't. Yeah, you don't need God to be religious. Yeah. That's another misconception. Right. That's what the sacred takes us away from. That. So but, this this brings up a good point. Um, I I want to note something. Uh, one of your definition in your in your textbook, which I. I got to say thanks for that because it did not read like a textbook. I Good. read it cover to cover. I thought it was yeah. We were sitting there uh, having dinner and <laughs> I said, hey, I need a book that just gives me the foundation of religion. And you humbly said, well, I wrote one of those. Yeah. So I, I loved reading it. And um, certainly it helps those of us who want to define some of these um, terms. Terms. Uh, so I, I want to read your definition of, of religion. Um, any set of established stories, ritual performances, mind disciplines, 
body practices and social institutions that have been built up over time around extreme encounters with some animal presence. Some, some anomalous. Some anomalous presence. Thank you. Uh, energy, hidden order, or power that is experienced as radically other or more. So and and also I hear these definitions from uh, like Edward Edinger, for example, or that look at the etymology of the term. Um, I think Edinger at one point uh, religare and religare. Uh-huh. Um, but but Jung um, uh, in uh, I forget uh, I forget which um, one of his collected works it was, but his definition is religion means a watchful, wary, thoughtful, careful, prudent, expedient, and calculated attitude towards the powers that be. And I, I'm wondering if you could speak to both of those definitions a little bit, um, and, and critique Jung if you uh, if you feel inclined to. Well, I I discussed the the two common etymologies of religio or religio, is religare and religare, and religare means to bind again, to rebind, and so that's kind of a social definition of religion. Right. That religion is about binding communities together around a, a common story and set of performances called rituals. Uh, religare means to reread. And so that's a much more intellectual mm-hmm. kind of thing that religion is about creating meaning and order in the world. And that can be done through story, it can be done through ritual or institution, but it's all about meaning making and rereading one's, one's life in the context of the, the here and now. And that's why religion always changes, is it's, mm-hmm. always, it's always a rereading. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I did define religion because I had to, but you know, most of us who study religion actually don't like to define things because we know that every definition is going to cut off as much as it embraces. Right. Um, for me, the, the bottom line of defining religion is you really do need some concept of the other or the more. Reli- the Super Bowl is not religious. Okay? It, it participates and mimics all kinds of religious functions. It's, it's a wonderful ritual. It's very savvy about its use of symbolism. Uh-huh. Um, but there's no transcendent. There's no, there's no sense of another order of reality or another uh, a, a set of, of strange beings that are behind the Super Bowl. It's, it's, in, it's, it's still a entirely, uh, um, it's a secular, human uh, event, even though, of course, it has all of these religious overlays to it. I get that. Yeah, but but it's not trans. There's nothing. There's nothing transcendent there. So what? So I love that you went here because I, I was just at a baseball game and I was looking at all these people, you know, that are all in this unified experience, yeah. you know, and eating. That's things wonderful. And, That's yeah. wonderful. And, and I thought for a second, like, well, this. I mean, it's just like a service, you know. They, they everybody's kind of bowing down to this experience it's completely meaningless <laughs> right it's game really ar- arbitrary for it's you. completely <laughs> arbitrary it's like a joke almost it's all, all games are jokes yeah, yeah. so yeah. so that that what i find fascinating about it though is from the tr- transcendence perspective is that people transcend kind of their day in and day out you know right. in, in, in that they're there's something they're going above you know they're not in, and I, what I do is I would relate that to a sexual experience is that yes there's something transcendental but there's also something about the kind of all of the things in the world seem to disappear yeah and no it's a kind of trance yes it's a kind of mild trance state yes and and and, and it does bind people from all strata of society in a very power it's very it's a powerful social event right. 
But I, again, for me, that's not religion. Yeah. I, I think if you if everything becomes religion, then nothing's religion, R- right? Yeah. And yeah. and then to go back to your subjects now, see, I think when you get into art and entertainment, you're sliding into the transcendent, mm-hmm. because my guess is I just I don't know this, but my guess is that if you scratch the surface of a lot of very famous entertainers or singers, you're going to get some really weird stories. Oh yeah. And you're going to get essentially stories about revelation and inspiration and claims that what they do is not them. Yes. Right? Yes. So that to me is when it starts to become religious, you know. I'm so happy you said that because it's... Um, it, That's not the Super Bowl. Right. And, and, you know, sometimes athletes will talk like that too. They'll, they'll talk about strange experiences that involve trance states and knowing what's going to happen before it happens. But that never enters the, the commentary of the Super Bowl. Uh-huh. That's always suppressed. That's always uh, uh, un, unrecorded. Um, okay, I know we're going to be wrapping up soon uh, i want to go feverishly through all of my my notes here and um uh so so in general um you, okay we yeah we had this oh w- would you speak to um literalism and mysticism what that dynamic is uh and how how you know we can learn to integrate some of the mystical can you be more specific, John? Yeah, I can. Um, I think sometimes people get locked into a particular perspective and they're not able to see underneath things. Yeah. And so what, what I think as I read a lot of your work is that you're really challenging people to, um, to look underneath things. And so I, I'm, I'm curious how, at least my, my project underneath it all is this... Um, real personal desire to look underneath things, but also to use this platform to help folks um, understand that taking a shit is sacred. You know, that, that it, it's not, it can, some, be. It can be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and, and then I mean, you're participating in a universal pattern that's fundamental to living. Uh-huh. And I think that becomes a, a, a profound experience if one is conscious of it. Yeah. So to take it literally, it becomes what Jung called a nothing but. You know, it's nothing but taking a shit, or it's nothing but a marriage, or it's nothing but a childbirth. Um, but how do we get to that other part of it where we can go through our lives and have some of that mystical dimension to our lives? Yeah. So, so the, pro- the problem with religion is that, at least in the modern West, we, th- we think of religion in largely literal terms. This is the mm-hmm. literalism part of your question. You know, a religion is about believing X, Y, and Z, and belief is, you know, taking it literally. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good number of modern people just can't do that. It's just not believable. It's just not plausible. And when you study religion comparatively, it's even worse. You know, one of my mentors used to say, uh, um, all, all religious beliefs are unbelievable. And what he meant by that is any belief system is only plausible within that system. Mm-hmm. All you have to do is step outside of it, and you can see instantly it, it's, not, it's no longer believable. 
So once you inhabit a comparative perspective, which is what the serpent's gift is all about, it's extremely radical because it takes you out of any particular religious worldview and lands you in a space that is engaged with all these religious worldviews in a very profound way, but doesn't really allow you to say one is true at the expense of all the others. Mm -hmm. So that's a paradoxical kind of position to be in. But what it essentially forces, for some of us anyway, is is a, an intuition or a gut feeling that there's something behind all of these religions that isn't any of the religions. You know, as one of my, Wendy Doniger, one of my mentors used to say, you know, there's all these webs and we can intuit a spider who's sort of spun all these webs, but we can never see the spider. We just see the mm. webs. That's nice. And I think she's right about that. I, I, I think there is something that spun all of these webs. Um, and I think that's some kind of mind or, or, or form of consciousness that is human and not human at the same time. Mm -hmm. In other words, it participates in our humanity, but it also uh, exhausts or, or transcends our humanity. And some people can call that God if they want. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like God language for a lot of reasons, so we can talk about it some other time. But, but I think you are led to this position that there is some kind of mind or consciousness behind it all that is speaking through all of these webs of meaning and reference and ritual and, and theater, but not literally, you know, not exclusively. And that's, I think, where you start to edge into what you called mysticism. Mysticism is a modern category that is based on a Greek word that means secrecy or the secret. And it refers to this very modern sensibility that there's a there's a something behind all of the somethings. There's, there's a, a presence or a form of consciousness that can be accessed, but probably never really explained or fully described. And uh, it's what produces all of the, the theater that, that is religion. Um, and where we get into trouble is we believe this play or that play or, or, or this play, and we want to shut down all the other plays. And um, that's where we get into trouble. So in, I want to question then just some open remarks for you to close on. Um, would you define um, belief, faith, and gnosis? So uh, all of those, again, are West, very Western. Um, belief is the intellectual assent to some proposition. I believe uh, that Jesus was the Son of God, or I believe that Muhammad was the the final prophet of of God, or uh, I believe that all things are impermanent. You know, you're you're assenting to some kind of religious proposition. Um, faith, you know, people have defined faith differently. I mean, you can describe faith as a set of propositions and a set of beliefs that one holds. I think that's how most people think about it. Theologians tend to back up bit away from that and talk about faith as a basic orientation to life that 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 gives us particular sorts of what we call ultimate meanings that allows us to, to be oriented in life and negotiate through life. And and so one can have faith without actually believing in religious propositions, but still have a basic faith that that makes life meaningful. Um, Gnosis is something very different. Gnosis is an ancient word that means something like direct knowledge. 
that um, you can have a direct knowledge of the divine or of the soul and of the identity of the soul and the divine, and that this isn't about belief at all. It's not about believing or ascending to an intellectual proposition. It's an actual experience, an actual direct knowing that one is simply given, and there's no arguing about it. It just it just is, you know. It's like it's like an orgasm. It just is. You don't. I don't believe in orgasms, right? <laughs> um, um, but and I can't explain to anybody what an orgasm is who right. hasn't had one. Yeah. Uh, but once you've had one, you you know, okay, okay. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I get that. Uh, so, you know, and, and and frankly, a lot of Gnostic language is sexual language. That, yeah. that, that's been an ancient kind of trope, that and death. Death and sex are the two major tropes in mystical literature. Um, so when I talk about the Gnostic, though, I'm not talking about the ancient systems, none of which I believe in. I, uh, they are into all kinds of things that I just— are completely implausible to me. I, I'm talking about a different way of inhabiting a body in the modern world that values, above all, some kind of mystical experience of consciousness or mind and sees that mind or consciousness reflected in the religious traditions, but also understand that none of those traditions has a monopoly on that mind or consciousness. That, that's what I mean by, by, by a Gnostic orientation. And I also mean a deep suspicion, frankly, about the religions. You know, the ancient Gnostics, they were our first scholars of religion. They were our first critics. They thought that most of what was called God in the Bible was a freaking idiot. And they said that. That's not me. That's them. I mean, they really thought the God of the Bible was just this horrible person. Infantile. And, yeah, just yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. How could anybody believe this nonsense? But but there was this God beyond that God that mm -hmm. they were completely uh, devoted to and, and claimed to know. So they were deeply, we would say today, they were deeply spiritual without being religious in the traditional sense, even though they themselves had traditions and communities and churches and often belonged to churches or synagogues or what have you. Um, but they made a definite cut between what was really God and what the religion said was God. Hmm. And I think my own feeling or my own position in my work is that at least some of us have to inhabit that position in the modern world. We desperately need critics of these religious systems because they are literally killing us. And they're doing tremendous damage to our world every day. And they're doing tremendous good every day. And we have to be able to talk about both of those things and not fall into these simplistic, it's all this or it's all that. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I just want to end on death and orgasm. Okay. So uh, maybe orgasm. I had to bring... Maybe not death. <laughs> who, said, who said little death? Yeah, I think it... that's the French. I think that's those good old French again. So thank you. Um, it's such an honor to have this conversation with you. Anytime, and John. We can I, I'll do it again. I'll on that. I will. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get a bit deeper into the subject matter, and then I'll come back with, uh, with more to bounce back and forth with you. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. Love